Welcome to the We Infuse Podcast, episode number three. Welcome to the We Infuse Podcast. My name is Dylan McCabe, and each week we bring you a behind-the-scenes look at the infusion industry. And our whole goal here is to provide tips, tools, and a roadmap for those of you, whether you're a provider or a nurse practitioner or anyone involved in the complex world of infusion therapy. And I'm excited because today I've got two guests with me. One is the co-founder of We Infuse Reese Norris, and the other is Brian Nyquist, who I've been telling you guys would be on the show for a couple of weeks now. So we're excited he's here. We're all together in Florida. And today we're going to dig into issues involving infusion therapy. So let's dive right in. Um, Brian, thank you for being on the show, man. Thanks for having me. And Reese, thanks for being on the show as well. Always a pleasure. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we do have our special guest, Brian Nyquist. And the reason he's special is because he does things on a policy level and really pushes for best patient care issues, issues that really affect all of us, whether you're a doctor or an office manager, whoever you might be working in a practice or a hospital Brian's really on the front lines of having, you know, pushing forth, forth issues that affect us all. So it's going to be great to have him on the show today. So Brian, I just kind of want to give you a, a second to kind of fill the background in of your, your background story and how you got involved in this space in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know how special I, I am, but, um, so I, uh, my background is in, uh, human biology, and public health, focusing sort of on health policy. Um, I start, sort of started out of, well, while I was working through grad school in uh, biosafety, occupational health, uh, institutional biosafety, research compliance, things of that effect. So I've, I've basically dedicated my career to helping other people, uh, whether that's keeping them safe, uh, when they're engaging in research with biohazards, biohazards material recombinant DNA, uh, things of that effect, all the way up to research involving humans. And then also um, just helping people understand the complexities of our healthcare system, how to navigate the insurance landscape, and really get the coverage and the care that they need. And so you have a scientific background, and I didn't even know that until today, which is awesome. Yeah, and so taking that that scientific background, did you say while you were working on a master's? Yeah, so my my undergrad is in human biology with okay. a focus on genetics, and then my graduate degree is a master's in public health with a focus on health policy and management. That is so interesting. So, what kind of led you to go to take the that knowledge and that skill set? I mean, what led you to where you are today with the National Infusion Center Association? So I guess the story of how I got from, from graduate school to here is kind of just a series of, of fortunate opportunities. Um, as as soon as I graduated, um, I I came back to Austin and, um, at that point we had just started a legislative session in Texas and, um, the newly appointed chair of the public health committee had no public health background. And so she reached out to the dean of my alma mater uh, looking for an expert in public health that was in or around the Austin area. And uh, for whatever reason, my, my name came up. And so I got a call. Uh, and the dean of my school asked if you know, I'd be interested in serving the state uh, as a sort of policy analyst for the House Committee on Public Health in the, the state legislature. Uh, it's not every day 
that you get the opportunity to sort of be involved in the public health legislation within your particular state. So uh, I took that opportunity, worked worked a legislative session, and then at the end of session, uh, I was connected with uh, the founders of NICA, who were looking for somebody to come in and provide you know, strategic direction, day-to-day oversight, uh, really build the organization sort of up from the ground. The organization at that point was operated remotely, uh, virtually, on a part-time basis by the founders. And uh, so it was... Just kind of right place, right time, two two positions in a row. And uh, the opportunity at NICA was, was a, a great opportunity for me to continue applying my passion for helping others and get me into a position where I could really dive deep into the healthcare industry and more particularly within a, a growing niche um, and so I was I was incredibly excited about it. Um, that that legislative session we had the the biosimilar substitution bill come through committee. So I had already been been really deep in the the whole concept of biologics and biosimilarity, biological products, interchangeability, things of that effect. Um, understood, you know, sort of the some of the the science behind autoimmune disease, um, and so it was just incredibly intriguing and interesting on, on a variety of levels that, that was really attracting me to that opportunity. Um, but most attractive was a combination of the ability to apply all of the, the skills, experience, and strengths that I've built to this point um, in a capacity where I can help people get access to this growing sort of area of medicine. And so for, I've got so many questions that are coming to my head about all this. So for people listening to our podcast, I mean, we've got CEOs, doctors, nurses, all kinds of people listening. Some people may not even know about the National Infusion Center Association. So can you explain what that is? Yeah, for people absolutely. Who are wondering about that. So the National Infusion Center Association is a 501c3, uh, which basically just means we're exempt from federal taxation. Uh, we're organized as a public charity. We are a patient advocacy organization, a nonprofit patient advocacy organization. We were formed with the mission to improve patient access to provider-administered intravenous and injectable medications. So we focus on the provider-administered parenteral products essentially covered under the medical benefit. And uh, so as I came on board, sort of looking at the various dynamics of the industry, some of the challenges and hurdles and moving the, this particular um, segment of the, of the healthcare system forward, um, it became pretty apparent that the best way to preserve and expand patient access to these particular products in this care was by supporting this historically underrepresented delivery channel, and more particularly, this historically underrepresented segment of the infusion delivery channel, which is the non-hospital, non-oncology, office-based care setting, um, which two primary cytokare models that fit under this quote-unquote infusion center component to our name. The specialty physician office-based infusion facility, as well as the independent standalone ambulatory infusion center model as well. So we achieve our mission by supporting this particular segment of the infusion delivery channel, mainly in three ways, through advocacy, education, and resource development. From an advocacy perspective, 
We work to identify, address, and overcome access challenges, barriers to patient access to care, as well as threats to this medication delivery channel so that infusion providers, their staff, don't have to. They can instead focus on providing care for their patients. From a provider-focused education perspective, we work to connect infusion providers and their staff with the educational materials they need to most effectively educate, communicate with, and ultimately care for their patients. From a patient-focused education perspective, we work to equip patients with the educational content they need to empower them to take a more active and collaborative role in shared decision-making as it influences the management of their condition, as well as to be a more active advocate for their overall access to healthcare. And then finally, from a resource development perspective, we work to connect infusion providers and staff with the tools and resources they need to ultimately improve their capacity to care for patients. That's so interesting. So it sounds so it sounds like a big part of the NICA is I mean it's pushing for patient care. It's it's taking care of issues that involve patients. That's exactly and and, and also a lot of education. Yeah. So in the midst of all that, I mean I know you're 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 taking trips to Washington DC, you're here in Florida right now with us. I know you travel a lot, you're you're doing a lot of things to benefit everybody involved. So what is your main area? What would you say is your main area of expertise in all this? Within the area of in-office infusion? Mm-hmm. I would say the health policy component. Um, based on my background, previous experience in, in public policy, specifically focusing on health policy, um, I'm, I'm able to really dive in to a lot of the uh, proposed changes, whether those are um, legislative or through the rulemaking process. So um, if CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, through the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, also referred to as CMMI, uh, produce demonstration projects, things of that effect, to test various aspects of reform, um, I have I have the background and sort of expertise to, to really dive into um, the legislation and some of these rules, essentially, to pick apart what are they trying to achieve? What aspects of existing sort of statute are they looking to modify? And what impact is that going to have on patients' access to care? And a big component of that is how is this reform going to impact the in-office infusion delivery model and the dynamics within that care setting? And so are you talking specifically about like a bill that could be passed yeah, and how that could, would affect patients exactly. or something like that. It could be like a that. bill, which is a, a legislative change that goes through Congress um, at the federal level or at the state level. Um, and then there's also reform that could happen through the rulemaking process, which is independent of the legislative process. So CMS has the ability through this new program, which was formed under the Affordable Care Act, CMMI, which I referenced previously, uh, they can essentially implement reform in the form of demonstration projects, basically experiments, um, and that those projects don't require congressional approval. So they've been granted the authority to test various reform measures independent of Congress approval. So interesting. So what what's out of all of that, what's one big thing you would want our listeners to take away from, from your main area of expertise? 
um, I guess they don't have to do it, <laughs> right? Um, infusion providers don't have to bring staff on with a public policy background to try and stay up to date on all of the, the legislative reform, uh, rulemaking that potentially impacts and reshapes the delivery channel or the regular, the regulatory landscape or the reimbursement landscape. Uh, NICA is positioned to do that, basically. Um, that's a, that's a heavy focus of ours. Historically, we've been, um, heavily focused in advocacy and that policy and rulemaking component is a, is a big piece of that advocacy component. And see, that's why I love that because he's fighting on behalf of all of us, even though many providers may not even know you exist, right? If they haven't heard of the NICA and yeah. yet you're doing these things in Washington that are, that are really big that affect us all. So Absolutely. I'm going to stop with all my questions and comments because I'm just getting all wound up. Reese, uh, what would you like to add to that? Well, you know, Bron, how do we learn more about the NICA? Like where, I mean, you've obviously got a website. What's the website domain? What are some of the resources on there? I mean, I, I know I'm just kind of prompting you, uh, you know, so our listeners can yeah. learn more. Yeah. So uh, our website can be found at infusioncenter.org. Um, on that website, you can find some of the advocacy efforts that, that we've been engaged in historically, some of the advocacy efforts that, that we're currently engaging in. Um, as well as the educational materials that we've developed and some of the resources that I've mentioned and sort of that, that intro and background behind NICA. Um, so some of the education materials that we have on our website right now include uh, like Infusion 101, foundational level, what is an infusion, what types of conditions are treated via infusion, what types of medications are delivered via infusion. Um, we talk about you know the different care settings in which you can get this care, um, we've got a glossary of insurance terms and healthcare related terms, uh, to help patients kind of understand some of the, the jargon that insurance companies are using in their benefit plan design. Uh, we've got a, a, a module that helps walk, uh, individuals through how to acquire a health plan through the marketplace, um, as well as kind of a breakdown between Medicare, Medicaid, uh, things of that effect. And, um, uh, we're working on a slide deck uh, that kind of provides a breakdown of the entire insurance landscape from commercial to public um, and uh, some of the resources that we have available. Uh, we have an infusion center locator resource, which is the most comprehensive database of outpatient infusion facilities across the country. And that is the most comprehensive database that is publicly available in the world, to our knowledge. Uh, we have about 3,200 infusion facilities uh, covering all 50 states, as well as the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico. Uh, the goal of that resource is to really help connect patients with the most conveniently accessible site of care within their community in which to get infused. Um, See, I just love how it keeps going back to the patient. Yep. We're yeah. re really seeking the common good for well, the that's, patient. That's what we do. We're, we're focused on the patient. Um, patients have to get access to this care, right? Uh, majority of these patients have autoimmune disease. And um, <clears throat> if they've been prescribed a biologic, conventional therapies have, have failed to manage progression of their disease. So if we can't get them stable, i.e. if we can't put their disease state into remission as quick as possible and keep them in stable as long as possible, 
the annual per capita economic burden of that autoimmune disease skyrockets, can more than double. So it's, it's absolutely imperative that we overcome all of these obstacles that patients are facing to getting those medications. And a lot of those hurdles are threats to the sustainability of this in-office infusion model, right? As, as we're seeing increasing attention at controlling the rising cost of care and medical benefit drug spend is seen as the leading driver, we're seeing a lot of efforts both in, in Congress as well as through rulemaking processes that are trying to control that medical benefit drug spend component. And the primary target for intervention is the margin on infusion providers' drug payments. So infusion providers have been forced to operate in a volatile reimbursement environment with increasingly pressurized atmosphere to operate on narrower and narrower margins. There's a threshold beyond which providing care is no longer financially sustainable. It's not viable. So if you're losing money to treat a patient population in the office, you're not going to treat that patient population in that care setting. And the alternative for that patient is the hospital care setting, which is significantly more expensive per patient per treatment. So everything that we focus on doing is getting patients into the office, keeping them in the office, and getting them on the prescribed therapy, which in our case is, is typically biologics and other IV injectable specialty medications like IVIG and, and, and so forth. So we're, we're most certainly patient-focused. We're patient-centric. But as I mentioned earlier, <clears throat> the most effective way for us to ensure patients have access to these products is by making sure that they have a more affordable, accessible, and compassionate alternative to hospital care settings. In this case, that's the office, whether that's physician office setting or these independent standalone infusion center models. So if you're listening right now and you have a provider-based uh, infusion center, you're billing under the medical benefit or Medicare Part B as in boy, we highly encourage you to register uh, on the infusion center directory if you haven't already. Yep. I think that's one of the key ways where patients find um, you know, sites of care. And full disclosure, I am on the board of the NICA and I was one of the founders, so very passionate about making sure uh, providers are registering through the locator because not only does that get patients a, p- a place and a forum, it just, you know, it establishes you, we can get, in, we can get in touch with you as well at the National Infusion Center Association and get involved. Um, you know, join the National Infusion Center Association if you're a standalone infusion center or a provider, um, whether that's a physician or a nurse practitioner that has an infusion center. Typically, we have a lot of rheumatologists, a lot of neurologists, gastroenterologists, and immunologists that are involved in the National Infusion Center Association. So we absolutely encourage you to get in touch with Brian and his team uh, to learn how you can support his efforts. Yep. And uh, just want to take that one step further. Within that infusion center locator, um, if your facility is already in the locator, you can claim that facility. And then once we've validated that, you, that you're affiliated with that facility and the, in the position to administer the profile for that facility in the locator, you've got access to build out the profile for that facility within the locator. Um, so you can populate hours of operation, uh, 
you know, amenities, things that affect medications delivered, specialties uh, treated, number of chairs, things of that effect. Um, <clears throat> provider members of NICA also have the ability to upload high-resolution images in their profile as well. So they can take pictures of, of the facility and, and basically post them um, within their profile. It's, it's a free marketing tool to help increase awareness of that facility. Um, so just quick kind of over overview of how, how the locator was built to work. Um, when a user goes to the locator, um, at the first instance, they'll be asked a few questions, trying to capture some demographics of, of each use case. Um, but then it auto populates a list of infusion facilities within a default of a 30 mile radius from where the individual is accessing the locator. Uh, we've also built in some sophisticated searchability so that they can search for facilities by you know, geography, by zip code, by state, by city, um, within a particular radius up to, I think it's 100, maybe 150 mile radius. Um, they can search by a particular product, by specialty, by certain amenities, things of that effect. So it's, it's important to have your profile built out and populated because users are searching for a facility within their area or, or a different area um, based on some of the information that's captured in that, in that profile. Um, in addition to the locator, one of the best, one of the, my favorite resources is the forum as well. So tell us about the infusion, is Con it the infusion confusion forum? Infusion or? confusion forums. <laughs> Thank you. Nice. Yeah. So uh, the like infusion that. confusion forums is our <laughs> online support network community for infusion providers and their staff to come together, talk about some of the challenges that they're facing, whether they're operational, clinical, uh, reimbursement related, uh, regulatory uh, in nature, and they can sort of collaboratively develop some accommodation strategies to, to address and, and ideally overcome some of those challenges. It also provides a sort of soundboard for us to stay up to date and in tune with what are some of the issues that providers are facing across the country. Uh, we're also working to build a patient side of that uh, community so that we build a, an infusion patient community, essentially. Um, there's been a lot of demand for that. And uh, it's free to use. Uh, anybody can can go in and read what's been posted. Um, you do have to create a free user account through our website uh, to be able to post uh, within the forum, as well as to uh, to claim a profile in the locator. We have all of those things behind a, a login firewall. I love it. I love forums. Go ahead. No, no, forums. Yeah. In fact, I just answered a, a question on the forum recently about infusion pumps. So it, it's definitely, to Brian's point, it, it covers the whole gamut of questions that you could encounter as an infusion center provider. I recently got a newsletter and want you to you know, tell our audience here about the upcoming conference that this will be your first conference uh, that National Infusion Center Association is putting on. Yeah. It's our inaugural show, basically. We're we're incredibly excited. It's it's sort of been in in discussions for for about three years now. <laughs> That's right. Um, and we we finally kind of have the the staff capacity and bandwidth to really throw a show. It's awesome. Um, so this is this show is going to be uh, in late June of 2019 in Austin, Texas, and it's it's going to be focused on in office infusion the operational and clinical challenges facing in-office infusion. 
both now and then uh, with challenges on the horizon, basically. Um, the theme is really going to be on optimization and expansion. Great. So what do we need to do to optimize the existing infusion delivery channel to maximize infusion capacity and ability to treat patients within the current infrastructure of the delivery channel? And then how can we expand access to care by establishing additional access points to the delivery channel? Um, we're building a resource right now that is basically going to be a turnkey roadmap for how to do that. Um, so if you have an existing infusion uh, line of business incorporated into your practice, how do I optimize it? What are some of the things I need to be looking at from both a performance uh, measurement capacity as well as uh, quality of care? So patient outcome type perspective. Um, and then if, uh, if you were looking to expand your infusion operations across state lines and you're not sure what the regulatory landscape looks like, we're doing an, a comprehensive analysis right now and breakdown of the regulatory landscape at both the federal level and the state level by state. Basically, it's it's a roadmap for how to start an infusion center, um, infusion facility, right? Whether that's uh, associated with a physician practice or an independent type model. Um, so big focus of, of the show is going to be on what do we need to do as a delivery channel to optimize, maximize efficiency, and work to expand. Because um, one of the big challenges that we're currently facing, uh, the delivery channel doesn't have the capacity to meet patient demand for existing products on the market across all care settings, hospital, office, and home. So if we're going to you know, support and justify continued investment in biopharmaceutical research and development, there has to be capacity in the delivery channel. And as I mentioned earlier, there's a lot of focus on controlling the, you know, the rising cost of care. So commercial payers already understand the value proposition of the office versus the hospital. So we have to build capacity in non-hospital care settings to not only meet existing demand for the products that are currently on the market, but to support demand for when we get all these biologics and all these other IV injectable specialty medications coming out of the pipeline, essentially. Um, especially if we, if we get an Alzheimer's product that comes out that's going to be administered in the office. I mean, that's a huge, an, an enormous patient population that's, that's going to be coming in, right? Awesome. Opening yeah, up a absolutely. huge segment of market share. And we got to make sure that infusion providers particularly these office-based infusion providers, are able to take that market share, essentially, and be able to provide a care setting for those patients. So is that, the for you, is that one of the biggest challenges on the horizon is trying to make waves that we've got more doctor's offices, more provider offices doing infusions? Yeah. I mean, the biggest the biggest challenge right now is is sustainability, right? There is a lot of threats, market dynamics and forces that are working against the sustainability of the in-office infusion delivery model, right? As I mentioned, volatile reimbursement landscape, increasingly pressurized atmosphere to operate on narrower and narrower margins. And uh, I mean, there, there are a lot of challenges that we're trying to overcome right now just to preserve the existing delivery channel. Um, but we also have to make sure we don't lose focus of the future, right? 
And we have to work to support a landscape in which the office-based infusion delivery channel is free to expand. Not just free to expand, but we have a reimbursement landscape and a regulatory landscape that really supports and drives expansion of the office-based delivery channel. And without that, where do the patients go? You know, Exactly. Yeah. They're yeah. going to go into the hospital. Yeah, and that's and that's and, just the perfect layup to me to give a plug for We Infuse. <laughs> because we talk, I mean, even at this conference, we're at FSR, and we've had so many doctors come up to us saying, we, you know, the infusion practice that we have is intense and, and risky because if we mess up on one buy and build drug or one claim, we lose track of one vial, we we make a mistake in one patient when it comes to the whole benefits investigation process, it, it, it's, uh, you know, it could be catastrophic. And so that's the whole goal behind We Infuse, the software. For those of you listening, if you haven't seen a demo yet, please check out weinfuse.com and just schedule a demo and you can see how we have everything tied together. The benefits investigation process, a chair-based scheduling feature, an infusion nurse's note that's connected to the inventory. And we even have inventory uh, management ordering and reports and reconciliations so that this incredibly unique practice slash business model can be managed. We can reduce the risk. We can reduce human error as much as possible so that those of us in the clinical setting can focus on the clinical part and not worry about these details that, that are, become snags to these provider offices. So definitely check out weinfuse.com. We also have a great blog post by Reese and Brian and others that, that educate and equip all of us that are involved in the infusion space. All right. So there's my shameless plug for We Infuse. Uh, now, now back to what we were talking about with all these challenges and the things that are happening that affect us all. What do you most tell our listeners what you're most excited about today? So b- before I answer that question and come back to that question, I wanted to touch on, on something that you sort of brought up. Um, the, I think it's so fantastic what you guys are doing to really support that the optimization and the expansion component. Now take your time with this. Okay. I feel like like you're about to say a lot of really important stuff. here. So, so one thing that I've noticed um, is, you know, going through medical school, right? Whether that's medical school to, to become a physician or nursing school to be a nurse or an advanced practice nurse, uh, a physician's assistant, things of that effect. Those curricula don't, typically include a business management component, certainly not a focus on practice management. So if you look at industries across the world, there are very few where you have multi-million dollar lines of business being managed by high school graduates, right? Or people without a background in business management or performance management, or program management, right? This is one of the challenges that is facing the sustainability of this model, right? Not saying you got to fire your practice manager, director of infusion services right now and go out and find an MBA. What I'm saying is don't be afraid to acknowledge that you're not strong in every area, right? We all have our strengths. We all have our weaknesses. What's important is to understand the areas in which your practice are weak and find solutions and strategies to address those weaknesses, right? An example of which, if you go taking a step back, managing buy and bill infusion inventory, there is extraordinary opportunity costs and financial risk 
and investing in maintaining a buy and bill inventory, right? Hundreds of thousands of dollars in a fridge, right? You are opening yourself up to enormous risk, catastrophic loss of product, things of that effect, right? If you don't manage just your inventory component, you could jeopardize the sustainability of that practice, right? So one of the things that NICA is is doing is we're exploring strategic partnerships with organizations that, that produce goods or services that can help infusion providers do what they do better. And I think what you guys are doing at We Infuse is phenomenal. It, it is, it's needed. Absolutely. And I am excited to have some of these dialogues at our annual meeting to really talk about what are some of the areas that we see um, practices are weak in, right? From a management perspective. And what can we do to really build up, build up a robust sort of portfolio of skills, right? And, and strengths, things of that effect. How can we address those weaknesses by bringing in external solutions that are strong in those areas of weakness to really set these practices up for success, not only in the now, not only in the intermediate term, but over the long term as well. That's so great. And that kind of goes back to something we talked about when you were on the show, Reese, and said, what's what's one of the keys to a successful infusion practice? And right away, you said the team you have. And that's interesting because you're, to your point, I've never heard it put that way, but that's true. We've got a multi, multi-million dollar business model that oftentimes is not being run by people that that's really their specific training is yeah. how to run a business. Exactly. And um, the, the, the focus is lopsided on the clinical side. And yet, you, like you said, I mean, we, we have practices that are ordering hundreds of thousands of dollars of drugs a week. And so that's, that's a great way to put it. Well, this has been so helpful. There's so much more we could talk about, but make sure we don't, this podcast doesn't go on for an hour. What's, uh, what's one last piece of advice you would want to impart to our listeners? Um, advocacy is going to be the secret sauce for overcoming these challenges in the now and in the future. Um, together we are stronger than we are individually it's not difficult to advocate, right? NICA does it every day, but without the provider and the patient perspective to establish the human connection to our advocacy efforts, it's seen as a non-issue. So it's absolutely critical that we get providers and patients to use their voice to advocate and leverage that voice. Filter that voice through NICA so we can amplify that into a cohesive and collaborative advocacy voice so we can develop the collaborative momentum behind these access challenges and threats that we're working to overcome. And we can do what we're seeing on the oncology space, right? We need the cohesion. We need the mobilization. We need the sustained engagement. And we need the collaboration that we're seeing in the oncology space if we're going to overcome challenges and we have to come together across all of these non-oncology specialties, we got to have one voice. That's great. I love that. I mean, it really is. It's amazing how you can, you get, you can come together and really push forth for it. So how can people get involved for those provider offices listening or different people listening? Do you want to get involved? What can they do? They can go to our website, sign up for our newsletter. 
we'll send out you know a, a sort of call to action through our newsletter uh, as well as our social media channels. Follow us on our social media channels. Um, if there's a call to action for an advocacy effort, we'll send it out through those channels. Um, depending on the nature of the advocacy effort, we may think there may it may be necessary to have a grassroots advocacy component involving letters or calls or social media. Um, we'll have directions and, and things of that effect of how individuals, stakeholders essentially across all of these stakeholder groups can really get involved in these advocacy efforts. Um, our advocacy platform is incredibly simple, right? We call it toilet seat advocacy. I mean, you click click a few buttons, you enter in your address, and you can send letters to your elected officials. Do it while you're in the right? toilet. Never heard that before. <laughs> and, toilet seat uh, advocacy. Yeah. And with the, the 2016 uh, Medicare Part B payment demonstration that was proposed to cut uh, Medicare Part B reimbursement from ASP plus 6%, 4.3% under sequestration, to ASP plus... Was it like one, but it was it yeah. would be less than one with sequestration. So, yeah, after sequestration, it was going to be ASP plus like 0.89% plus $16.80, which would not be sustainable. So in response to that, we leveraged our grassroots advocacy platform, this toilet seat advocacy, essentially, <laughs> to send 40,000 letters to DC, the Hill, uh, in three weeks and 15,000 letters in the first four hours on the day of peak engagement before the sergeant of arms for the Senate called our platform vendor and shut down that line of communication because we essentially broke the email infrastructure uh, in the Capitol. That is so, incredible. Yeah, that's, I that, mean, it's just incredible. That's the power of collaborative advocacy. Yeah, and it's because I think so many people listening think, oh, that's great what Brian Nyquist is doing, but what can I do? Man, yeah. clearly you can do a lot when everybody comes together. I yeah, mean, that's amazing. It's, it's, synergy is an incredibly powerful concept, particularly in advocacy, right? We can, we can go in and say that providers are having an issue, say that patients are, aren't getting access to care because of some policy issue or some rulemaking change, but without that human connection without the patient and the provider perspective, it's seen as a non-issue. So yeah, I, I did a public policy session at, at McKesson's Onmark Rheumatology Summit a few weeks ago in San Antonio. And the theme of that message was the squeaky wheel gets the grease, right? Absolutely. Every issue in DC, there's two sides to, right? You got two sides working on their, their perspective of the issue, their outcome, right? So each each issue from a legislator's perspective has two squeaking wheels. So every wheel is squeaking. So how do you get the grease when every wheel is squeaking? You have to be the loudest wheel. <laughs> and together, we can be the loudest wheel. Always. But we have to come together. NICA was formed to be the cohesive advocacy voice across non-oncology specialties for patients' access to in-office infusion. We're the channel. We need to funnel those perspectives, the perspectives of stakeholders, through NICA's channel, and we can have the loudest advocacy voice, we'll hands down. Model. Yeah, it's so right. good. Yep, Hundreds of thousands yeah. of patients, thousands of providers. We can all come together and we can really drive responsible and sustainable reform 
because we have to. If we don't do it, somebody's going to do it for us. And the outcome is going to be suboptimal, <laughs> right? If it's CMS or if it's legislators, any non-stakeholder that doesn't understand the unique characteristics of the infusion delivery channel, the, the unique dynamics of managing these complex chronic conditions with these particular products, whatever solution they come up with is not going to be the solution that we want. So until we come together as stakeholders and funnel all of all of our individual voices through a single cohesive collaborative advocacy voice, somebody's going to come in and tell us how how these providers need to operate, how the delivery of care needs to look, and ultimately how reimbursement looks, right? How the regulatory landscape looks. So we we got to come together because the sustainability and the long-term viability of this model depend on it. That's so good. Yep. If you're a provider office by yourself, you're just going to be a whisper in the wind. But if you come together with the NICA, you have a megaphone, you have a platform Squeakiest for everyone wheel. to use. That's mm-hmm. so good. And so, and obviously people can donate to the NICA as well, right? Yeah. Become part of that movement. Absolutely. And one more time, the website is infusioncenter.org. Correct. Infusioncenter.org. Yep. Well, that's excellent. Well, Brian, thank you so much for being on our podcast, man. We pre- we know you're busy, uh, but we really appreciate you sharing your story and what the NICA is, is doing with all of our listeners. Appreciate the opportunity. And Reese, thanks for joining the podcast as well as a co-host. Always a pleasure. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, for those of you listening, thank you for joining us uh, in the journey of infusion. This is the We Infuse podcast where we take the confusion out of infusion, and we will catch you in the next episode. <laughs>